Welcome to Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. And this is Mike Gavigan. And Rock Album Analysts is the podcast where three lifelong friends, rock fans, and musicians take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. The music, the lyrics, the recording, the minutia, and... Uh, Today we're going to be taking a look at the first KISS solo album, Ace Fraley's solo album. Um, before we do that, a um, little housekeeping. Last week's Alive 2 episode is now our most listened to episode, so thank you to everybody out there for that. Um, much appreciated. Uh, if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, please uh subscribe leave a rating and review we got reviews and i hate to say this one of the reviews on itunes is from my mother-in-law but she gave us she gave us five stars sorry all right i'll take what i can get <laughs> uh, here's a track by a band i've been in for the last uh, 15 or 16 years or so uh the band is called the blessings uh it's a very uh Rolling Stones oriented, faces oriented, uh, original band uh, that you know that sort of you know writes songs in those vein and, and records songs in that vein as well. Uh, it's a song that I'm really proud of. Uh, it's a song called Shipwrecked. Uh, it's got a wonderful chord structure. That, as a matter of fact, I remember I went to sleep one night at my girlfriend Heather's house and I woke up hearing this song that was being you know, in a dream played by the Rolling Stones in a rehearsal that had never been released. So ah. I remember waking up. Remembering the chord structure from beginning to end, and I thought, okay, I've got it. And I, you know, sometimes you don't remember them, but I remember going and to uh, uh, going home and getting a guitar and playing it. And I brought it to, to the band, and it, it became one of those songs where it, you know, not to, you know, name names, but it sounds like a lost 1970s Rolling Stones track to me. Um, and I'm really proud of the recording. So it's a song called Shipwreck from uh, one of the bands called The Blessings. That's beautiful.
sketches. Don't you ever mention my name? One of my favorite rockers on this. Doesn't showcase my bass playing all that much, but still great. Uh, you know, because I'm not an egotist, it's a great song, man. It really kicks my ass every time I listen to it. And makes me uh, makes me yearn for my youth of running around the streets of uh, Pittsburgh. Baby up, lock him in his room Teach him to be quiet, but he grows so soon You grow so fast on your place, little child You die before you grow because the other become wild You better get off the tracks, here comes the train It was nice to get acquainted, but don't you ever mention my name The women wear wigs and the men wear cologne They keep the dog outside to protect their home The kids are well dressed and they're always in style They die before they grow because the young love become wild You better get off the tracks, here comes the train It was nice to get it when, but don't you ever mention my name Down by the trains, under the tracks There's three cans left from my four six pack I pulled this nigga from my old man's stash When it chops my guts, baby, we're born to crash You better get off the tracks, here comes the train Cause it was not to get acquainted But don't you ever mention my name Take my lungs, the bitter with the sweet Losing doesn't bother me I just don't like it in peace God don't mind a sinner, baby But now he's used to that But God can't stand a traitor, baby is Am I a Warrior by Dame Fortune, who, fun fact, uh, Mike and I started uh, in the year 2000, I believe.
So uh, last week we were talking about Alive 2, and uh, just to give some context now, uh, six months after Alive 2 comes out, Kisses the number one band in America. Um, they put out double platinum. Um, you know, they're used to putting out a, a double release or a release every six months or so. Um, that album goes platinum, um, which means actually it sold probably a, a 500,000 copies because it was a double album. Um, and that's the way they were counted uh, in the U.S. Um, but still, uh, and then six months after that, September 18th, KISS did what no other band has done before or since. They simultaneously released four solo albums, one solo album for each member, still under the moniker KISS, and Ace Fraley's album was the top-selling album, yielded the only hit, New York Groove, combined elements of hard rock, power pop, funk, and progressive music, um, and is widely considered to be the best of the four solo albums which is a bit of a surprise to everybody because up until that point, Ace had only really contributed maybe a song per album up until that point in terms of his songwriting. So before we get into all of that, um, let's, let's start talking about the context and the decisions that led them to make this bold move and whether or not that was even a good idea in the first place. Yes, indeed. Yeah, go, Mike, well, you guys probably know better. I mean, I know the basic story. It's Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Ace Fraley wants to quit. Bill Coin says, you don't have to quit. We're all going to put out solo albums. And the question is, is uh, which is interesting because I, I always loved Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. I know that everybody else hates it, but I always thought it was cool. And I was reading something where Ace apparently says that it's uh, he actually had a blast doing it, whereas everybody else felt it was ridiculous. I don't know how true that is. Well, but, Ace, at the time. Ace said something very funny about that, where he said, you know, it turned out exactly the way that he thought it was going to turn out. And then <laughs> Gene and Paul, you know, talk about how mortified they were. And Gene was like, well, as we were doing it, why did did you think it was going to turn out to be Shakespeare? I mean, what? <laughs> right. You're right. It's like <laughs> the albino apes or whatever popping out and you're shooting lasers out of your eyes. Come on, man. Yeah. I mean, I, re I remember as a kid seeing that movie and it was exactly what i wanted to see you know it was my band as larger than life superheroes i couldn't you know i couldn't have imagined anything better uh than what it was at the time and i i have a funny story not to go off on too much of a tangent here but i remember uh i was showing that movie to calvin when he was like maybe three years old and i was just skipping past the uh the scary parts you know when they're in the chamber of horrors and whatnot and uh and Calvin realized what I was doing, and he said, go back, go back, I want to see that, you know. And uh, and I was like, I don't know, Cal, I think that's kind of scary, you know. And he goes, no, 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 I want to see that, I want to see that. And I said, okay, okay. So I went back, and I, I, showed, I showed him the scene in the Chamber of Horrors, and his jaw dropped, and he had this glassy look on his face, and I was like, are you okay? And he goes, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So so anyhow, I know there's been some controversy in the KISS world that because people have started analyzing what Gene and Paul said happened uh, and the order they said it happened and, and how it could have happened. And 
to be frank, the two don't completely add up because Gene and Paul say, well, we started filming this this movie and then and, you know, Ace and Peter came to us and said we wanted to leave. But it was already in the contract that at least some of them were going to do solo albums. So that wasn't necessarily a new idea. And Ace had already started recording his album before they were filming Kiss Meets the Phantom, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, I think those are the demos for On the Need of Love and, you know, the, the so to speak unreleased track, I think. Now, there are some interviews with Ace where he talks about the fact that he was stockpiling songs, that he knew that he had songs that were really good, but he didn't want to give them to the band. He was trying to save them for the solo album that he knew was coming. So, yeah, that's what he seems to say. I don't know if that's. Why would you do that? I don't know. Definitely, he had some demos done for I'm in Need of Love and uh, the unreleased track at a place called Sound Mixer Studios in Manhattan. Uh, but when, you know, Dave, you mentioned the timeline. I mean, look at it this way. They wrapped up the Alive 2 tour in April of 78 in Japan. Um, in May 78, they start, They did the performance uh, for Kiss Me the Phantom of the Park, you know, the live performance in the footage that was used in the film. And then they began filming in May of 78. Um, and I think they... I think they've wrapped up, you know, filming, you know, in a relatively short time. But then look at it this way. They had, you know, between then and September to record albums, you know, four simultaneous albums and get those out, you know, for the fall market. So that's a really short timeline. So they had to have done at least, if they weren't recording, they had to have done at least some writing previous to this. Because that's a lot, that's a lot of work. It's like, you know, 40 songs, you know, recorded in, in like two months and packaged and released. It's, it's amazing they got that done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, Ace recorded his in less than two months, Ju- yeah. June and June and July. Yeah. But on the, the subject of the contract, I was you know, reading in various you know, Kiss-related books, and I think supposedly the band were advised um, in June of '77 in a business meeting to consider producers for solo albums, which would have been well before filming Kiss Me's a Phantom. And then in various interviews, Gene and Ace talk about solo albums uh, during the months of July and December '77. So again, before Kiss Me's a Phantom. And okay. supposedly the Kiss, there was a Kiss contract that was uh, developed in late '76, um, where they agreed to deliver to Casablanca between January '77 and June '79 the equivalent of five studio records. Now, uh, a best There's of more. compilation, yeah. So a best of compilation was supposedly not going to be considered as an equivalent, while a two-record set like a Live Two would be considered only as one album under contract. Oh wow! But then, okay. yeah. But then also too, with the, the issue of solo albums. Um, the four solo albums would count as two full delivered albums as part of their contract. So okay. four albums would, would take away two. Um, and then if you look at this way, I think it was Love Gun, Alive 2. Um, but the, the, I have a question about Alive 2. We'll get to that in a minute. The four solo albums, which accounts as two, and then Dynasty. Okay. So they're your records. But my question about Alive 2 is, in the contract, the, any album had to be no less than 25 minutes. But the side four new material on Alive 2 is, I think, only about maybe 17 minutes. So okay. is that why they released Double Platinum? Because they didn't get you know their supposed you know fifth album out of that period? I don't know. Well, was it that any side had to be at least twenty five minutes, or was it that the album total length had to be twenty five minutes? It, 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 I, I, album, yeah. Okay, in that case, then the live two would have counted it. Okay, good point. So before we go any further, uh, happy birthday, Mike. Hey, thank you, Dave. Oh, hey, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, we won't mention any numbers, but uh, it's good to be alive. So thank you so much, and good to be with you guys. Yeah, good to be with you too, sir. Um, so they went all in on this, right? I mean, they spent two and a half million dollars 
on it 1978 money just to promote these albums to make them hit they shipped over approximately 4.5 million copies of these four albums um and they didn't sell anywhere near that they sold i think half of what they were right fifty thousand or whatever uh well i think gene and paul and peter's albums ended up going gold and ace's album went platinum so they, they you know they they took two million copies just in returns probably Ugh. yeah 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 um so you know before we get into that to analyzing Ace's album, that brings to mind the question, what could they have done? Um, you know, I, I think in hindsight, being 2020, uh, they could have made a live two just a live album. For one mm -hmm. thing, you know, they could have used Take yeah. Me, Do You Love Me, Hooligan. They could have featured the solos a little bit more and they could have put a new version, live version of rock and roll on all night, or maybe, you know, maybe one more track that was also on a live. And mm -hmm. then they would have had five new studio songs as a band. If you look at, you know, they would have had about 39 potential tracks between the, the uh, solo albums and then dynasty, another nine tracks. So you can't tell me out of five and a half albums worth of material have they simply gone back to the album every six month cycle? They couldn't have come up with three killer albums. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, what we're looking at here is the timeline. I think you know they didn't have you know four different periods of, of six months to be able to, to make that happen and tour and record. Uh, so I think it's a fantastic notion, but I just don't know if you know, under the contract they had that much time to to spread that out. Well. You know, if they were ever in a position to renegotiate their contract, though, it would have been at that time. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the other aspect of it is look at what they're asking their fans to do. You know, they're asking them to buy one album every six months. Now they've two times in a row, they've asked them to buy double albums between a live two and double platinum. And the most recent one is, you know, barely a new album. I mean, it's remixed and it you know, has a new version of Strutter, but it's not that different. So they've now you've just bought the same tracks and a mere six months after that, you're going to ask your fans to spend twice the amount of money and buy four albums. That's that's like twice the amount that you've ever asked them to spend before. Albums ran about seven dollars back then. So that's yeah. seven Seven times, yeah. So that's seven times four, whatever that is. I'm the art teacher, not the math teacher. But yeah, so it's that's a lot of money. And and it's interesting that they keep coming out with stuff every six months because it seems like they want they're afraid that people are going to lose interest. It's like they're putting out the Star Wars holiday special all the time to make sure that people don't you know forget about them. Well, yeah. Now that the formula is actually working, I think there is this attitude, at least amongst the record company people, that like we better milk this for everything we can yeah. as quickly as we can because it could all go away overnight. And in doing so, I think they actually are sabotaging themselves and and uh, making it go away faster than it otherwise might have. Well, what do you guys know about Ace hoarding these songs? Like, was Ace always talking about essentially? Like, at what point is he like, I'm leaving. I'm going to quit and I'm going to hold on to these songs for it because I know I have this stuff for a solo album. I know that he's been quoted as saying, 
Um, you know, Gene, you know, Gene would say, I can write up to 30 songs in a, you know, in a month and you, you can only write two. And, and, you know, Ace's answer to that is, of course, my two are, are good. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I would argue that, I mean, if you look at this solo album, this, there, there's two stinkers on it, according to me, which aren't even stinkers, you know what I mean? But it's all solid. So like, why didn't we, what, what's the issue? Like, has he always been like that? Like, Stand, you know what I mean, standoffish or whatever about being afraid of like leaving the band or what the band was going to do to his stuff. You guys know better than me. You've read more books about it, but well, I think part of it was you know Ace was not an accomplished singer uh, in the same way that Gene and Paul were. You know, so mm -hmm. he didn't feel comfortable singing that many of his own songs. I mean, yeah, I think the fact that Rocket Ride was a bigger single off of Alive 2 than Shout It Out Loud probably boosted his confidence a bit. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it took the process of making this album, of working with Eddie Kramer, somebody that he knew and he trusted, um, mm -hmm. to really give him the confidence to be his own frontman. Yeah. Well, his, voc his vocals are much more... Um what's the word I'm looking for, much more assured in this one, in a, on a solo album as compared to even... Now, I mean, I love the, the vocal stylings on Shock Me, where he sounds like he's, you know, tripping over himself, and it sounds awkward. And this stuff sounds a lot more solid and polished, and, you know, that he sat down and he said, this is how I'm going to sing it. So, I don't know. And, you know, two points. If you do think about it, Dave and John, if instead of just, you know, went forward with releasing four solo albums at the same time and, you know, drawn that out and released, you know, maybe two studio albums or maybe even, you know, double live or not a double uh, studio record, you know, because basically the, the, the four solo albums at the same time, same day, that basically Casablanca was going to be going belly up because of the, the fact that there were so many returns um, with the, the material that they shipped out. So maybe, you know, in hindsight, it would have been better to, you know, focus on maybe, you know, maybe two records instead of you know, four albums at once. Spread that out over a few months. Uh, you know, who knows? But then it's here you have you know four albums with you know let's say just, I don't know the exact count, but like 39, 40 songs. They didn't do any touring behind this at all. I mean, they basically just went release the albums and then we're gonna record another record and tour you know a year or so later. So you know that's a lot of marketing to go behind something you're not really going to promote other than you know in print or you know on TV. Um, but on the th on the question of bases and material, I'm, I've I've not seen anything anywhere where he had you know specific songs that were you know written in advance of this. But I, I do I did see one interview where he said he said I think he had some material written for Rock and Roll Over or Loveland that he was just you know saving for a solo album. So how many songs that was or what you know, what songs those could have been I don't know. But if you think about this too, when you got you know all those guys in that group, I mean, Gene and Paul were established singer songwriters you know in terms of you know the band uh, dynamic. Uh, Peter, you know, had, I think, what, like seven or so songs that he'd either, you know, done vocals on or had, had written. Uh, but Ace was the wild card here because he only has you know, two songs that he's done vocals on, um, even though he has other songs he's written for the band. When it comes to, uh, you know, a guitar player, singer, you know, doing material on an album, he only had two songs. So there were probably a lot of questions about, you know, was he going to be able to do this? And no wonder, um, working with Eddie Kramer, you know, I think you have, what, there's essentially four guys on this record. You have Ace, Willie, Anton Fig. Well, I'm sorry, that's it, right? Yeah, and then, you know, background vocalist. But, I mean, in terms of, you know, the number of people involved in this project, it was really focused. I mean, there weren't a lot of side musicians or studio musicians you know, or, or string sections. It was, you know, this is, a, this is a, you know, basically like a rock trio. We're going we're gonna to put this record out the way Ace wants it to be done. Amazing. So two points about that. One, um, 
the fact that they weren't touring and the fact that Peter Chris doesn't even play drums, I think, on most of the tracks on his solo album, uh, leave me to believe, you know, was Peter Chris even in, in the kind of shape where he was would have been able to tour during this period? I don't know. And that may have been another factor that led into the, the decision making of them saying, mm -hmm. well, this gives us a year's time for Peter to get his act together and tour mm -hmm. on Dynasty, right? Um, the other thing is, you know, Gene took the exact opposite approach. I think Gene, with his solo album, he said, I want everybody and their mother. I want, you know, everything but the kitchen sink. I want the Beatles. I want, you know, Bob Dylan. I want every, anybody in the rock world to be on my album because that will lend it a legitimacy that it might mm -hmm. not otherwise have, where Ace took it to, to mean the exact opposite. Yeah, that, you know, it's a solo album, so as much as possible... I'm going to do everything. I'm going to sing all the songs. I'm going to play all the guitars. I'm going to play a lot of the bass. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that's why I think it comes across as a much stronger, much more cohesive effort on his part. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, should we get into it? Track by yeah, track? Yeah, yeah, All right. First al album opener. Rip it out. I love it. It's a great riff, great opener, super energetic. Um, different than a lot of Kiss songs because it's, uh, you know, speaks about be having your heart broken. I mean, how many Kiss songs are really that about the dude getting their heart broken? Um, well, it's the classic, and, she done me wrong kind right, of Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, some, I mean, when I listened to it, I was like, well, this is his F you to Paul and, and Gene, you know, or whatever, um, you know. They've taken everything from them, that kind of stuff. But I, I don't, you know, it's probably more just like a love gone wrong. But uh, it definitely, and again, that that opening riff is just really killing that. And I, I see in the credits, it's written by a, like like a married couple, the Kellys or whatever. Do you guys know anything about them? Uh, yes, I believe Larry was the lead singer in one of Ace's pre-Kiss groups. It was either Magic People or Cathedral. Okay. Um, suppose it's Larry's doing background vocals on the song. I'm not sure who. I think Sue was also in the band, but I don't know what you know, her role was in the group. Okay. Yeah. So, so interestingly enough, this song um, there was a few interesting things about it. The opening riff, I think, owes a lot to um, a Doobie Brothers song. The, what's what's the name of that song, Mike? Uh, China Grove. China Grove. <laughs> So if you yeah, play, kind of if you, I see yes. you have your guitar. Play the riff for China Grove. Okay, let me I make some noise here, kids. Uh, where's my stuff? Okay, so. You know, which kind of sounds like the full-on stuff here. Similar. Yeah, pretty similar, which, I mean, you could say China Grove it takes its influence from good times, bad times, right? I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a progression there. It all kind of goes back to Led Zeppelin. But, uh, you know, I, I, I remember hearing that. Um, there's also, like, an interesting kind of melodic har harmonic complexity to this song. If you think back to early, early Kiss songs, like, say, Deuce. Deuce is squarely in the key of A, or A-flat, because it's tuned down, but you know, the, the chorus is in A, the verse is in A, strutter, B, the chorus is in B, the, the, the verse is in B, the bridge is in B. Um, 
But this song starts out in the key of E and then modulates the chorus, depending on which way you think of it. It's either in the key of D or G, right? So either, <clears throat> and, uh, and it does that by, by inserting some passing chords and some space by going, you know, going to, the, to the G, going to the A, which then becomes the five chord to pivot off to the key of D for, mm -hmm. for the chorus. And that's a really, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I think that's something that both, Gene, both Paul and Ace started doing and evolved into doing. And if you really want to trace the origins of it in rock music, it comes from the fact that, uh, you know, you have in rock music, wild thing, your basic chord progression, one, four, five. Okay. Right. But because we're, we're not defining these chords as major or minor, there's no third, they're all power chords. A lot of times you can substitute a flat seven chord. So instead of playing, say, in the key of A, instead of playing the E, you can play a G power chord. So it's a small step to, to going from that to switching to a key that is then one whole step below that. And change and changing the key for the song. That's the way I look at it. You may your mileage may differ. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because I always think of the the verse as having a sort of a minor feel in a way, but there are no minor chords in that progression. But it, it if you think of it that way, then when it goes to the chorus, the chorus has more of an uplifting feel, you know. Because it, right. to me, I just I feel like there's somewhere in there there could be a minor chord in, in that verse, but you know, I, I really don't think there is. But somehow it's implied. Okay, well, if you look at it that way, then it goes to G, which is the relative major, but which is mm -hmm. still a pretty big harmonic twist for, you know, a Kiss song at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and then when you have, uh, it's sort of the, the, the passing chord, it's uh, the B, B, E, B, you know, to go back into the verse, uh, the verse again. It's, it's interesting. You know, I don't think that he was thinking, you know, that thoroughly about, you know, where he's going musically with, but I think as a, as a whole, musically, it works either way. You know, whether that came spont spontaneously or, you know, it was, it was thought out, it, it comes across great and it's a great opening track. And that drum crack at the beginning is frightening. If you've got your stereo cranked and that thing comes on, you know, it, it takes you by surprise. Well, this is this is one of the two songs that has is to this day in his set list. He uses it as an opener a lot of the times. He's played it 335 times. Um, yeah. And... We, we haven't talked about the general recording of this album, but basically basic tracks with Ace and Anton were done in a mansion in Connecticut with Eddie Kramer. Um, then they went to a studio in New York that was above where the Rockettes used to perform. Uh, and they overdubbed, primarily they overdubbed guitars and bass and vocals, but they also recut some of the drum tracks. This may be one of the tracks that they recut the drums for, um, because they doubled the uh, the drum solo on this track, so when Anton uh, goes into that drum solo, it's yeah. it's doubled. And interesting thing about that, he talks about, um, and I know this thanks to a tip of the hat to Julian Gill, who did a wonderful book, Gene Ace, Peter and Paul, detailed exploration of the solo albums. But um, it's almost an exact doubling, except when he goes at the end from the high toms to the low toms on one track, he does the opposite on the other track. So you can kind of hear that if you listen for it in, in the stereo mix. Yeah, it almost does like a W-type, you know, panning thing. It's, it's nutty if you put yeah. headphones on and check it out. It's, it's amazing. The fact that, you know, you had a, a double-track drum break, you know, I don't, I don't know how many times people you know, do double-track, you know, drums. I, you know, but in this case, it works so great. But that, yeah, that thing is like, 
over the top. Like, okay, I'm going to do two tracks. I'm going to do in one direction and then the other direction and spread it across the, the stereo field. You know, what a, what a concept. Right. And also hats off to Ace. I mean, this is his album. And, you know, the first solo you hear on the first song isn't a guitar solo. It's a drum solo. Good point. Yeah. 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 And I do I do think this was, according to Anton, one of the, the tracks that was uh, uh, cut um, at Plaza Sound. Uh, but on that subject too, well, some of the you know some of these guitar sounds on this record. I'm, yeah, I know the Ace had typically used some small amps and big amps. Small amps being a Fender Harbor amp, which is like a 10 watt, you know, 10 inch speaker amp. But he's also never really come out and said it. But you know, in inner circles that, that know him, uh, he's known for using a thing called the Electroharmonics uh, Linear Power Booster. Okay. Which is a pedal that I think came out in 1972, and it was advertised as something that you know, if you plug this into your rig, it could make your amp up to 10 times louder. Oh now, wow. You know, so if you run it through, uh, well, this, this, one like, to this one goes to eleven. If you put this into like, let's say, a Fender Twin, you know, Fender Twin's a hundred watt amp. That that'll you know that'll take your your face off straight away. But this makes a cleaning amp just unmanageably loud. But with a, an amp that has some gain to it, like a Marshall or you know a, a, a low watt amplifier like a Fender Harvard, you get this sort of driving sound. Which you know, here's like a tone. Uh, let me get my stuff back here. So you just have sound, right? Which is okay. But then when you kick in, so. You kick in the booster, and in the case of Rip It Out, there's that great sustain. Yeah. You know, it's just you mm -hmm. know, killer. And I, I think yeah, it just sounds component. fuller, is what the amp sounds, or that pedal seems to make each uh, chord fuller, and that yeah. tune makes it louder. How does it do that? Never mind. That'll, that'll, yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing. That's for. Finish Guitar Magazine. That's the right, other. yes. One last point on Plaza Sound. According to the book that you mentioned, Dave, which is a fantastic book, um, Plaza Sound was on top of Radio Music Hall. I think it was on the seventh floor. But supposedly had it was a floating uh, studio. Like they had basically the studio rested on felt-covered steel springs. Yes. To you know, isolate the sound from you know Radio City and also you know to, to help with you know the way they tracked uh, this record. But funny point too, according to uh, Rob Freeman, who was the engineer. He had mentioned that yeah, the elevator went up to the, you know, let's say like the sixth floor, but anytime, anytime you got to the studio, you still had to go up a staircase to the top floor where the, the studio was. So you had to carry any gear up a, a flight of stairs, even though there was an elevator in the building, but it just didn't go all the way to the top. What, what yeah, well, that's because the floating studio is meant to like block out noise and things that you yeah. hate. Right. Yeah. Trucks outside and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. But still, it but, seems like that, a major pain in the ass. I'm sure Ace wasn't right, hauling yeah. any of these amps himself, but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but again, great tune, and I think uh, in terms of lyrics, guys, um, it's interesting you have a guy saying, you know, basically, you know, rip it out, take my heart, and you want it from the start, but then before the solo, um, you know, what's the lyric there? He says, I hope you suffer. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. which to be fair, that's the one line where, you know, you start, I think, to lose a little bit of sympathy for the protagonist of the, <laughs> of the song, right? I mean, that seems like kind of a cruel sentiment. I hope you mm -hmm. suffer, but okay. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, in terms of, you know, in numbers, uh, this must set a world record for the number of guitar pick slides. I think there's a total of nine or ten. Okay. You know, especially in the outro. So Yes, I mean, there's kind of like an effect where yeah, they're overdubbing those those thick guitar pick slides. Yeah, yeah. if you've seen Ace, you know, after he does a couple of pick slides with a, a, a guitar pick, I've got a few that are just chewed up you know, beyond belief just by doing one or two, you know, and he, he, he tosses to the audience. So to get, you know, Ten in on a on a on a song. <laughs> a lot of guitar picks over. died in the making of this song. 
horribly. <laughs> okay, so track two, Speeding Back to My Baby. All right, good song for a gentleman who's already at this point wrecked his car twice, right? Is that what it comes down to? And he's, um, but it's a, it's very 1950s rock and rolly. It's almost harkens back to sort of the early Kiss albums. You know what I mean? Sort mm-hmm. of. Uh, I don't know if it sticks to one, four, five, but it's not. Most of this album is very riffy, and this is the one song that doesn't really strike me as particularly riffy. And it seems apparently also written by his wife, helped him write it. So. Yeah, supposedly she contributed some some of the lyrics. Um, okay. It's also yeah, it's got a shuffle beat. The the verses are definitely one four five. Um, mm-hmm. It it's, it makes an interesting kind of chromatic transition to get back up to the chorus. It kind of goes from E yes. to F mm-hmm. to and mm-hmm. to up to G again, um, which is one of those things that, that that theoretically shouldn't work, but somehow it it, it comes across great in the song. Well, there's a lot of stuff that Ace does that doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Because a lot of these times I hear these things, and I mean, in the you know, this I'm going to argue that this is sort of the step to making Kiss a metal band. This Ace Frehley solo album is the first time that I hear inklings of like the heavy metal riff centric distorted sound that sort of becomes the Kiss sound. Now I'm probably going to be wrong. You know, I'm going to listen to the next couple of albums. Aside from speeding back to my baby. Um, but that's where I feel like this is um, where he's headed with the way that he's writing in this album. Um, but again, this first one, this speeding back to my baby does seem to harken back to like the really early Kiss albums. Uh, but but again, I, I, it feels like, like if you listen to like early Black Sabbath and stuff like that, you're like, why are you transitioning from there to there? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit in the song. And a lot of the stuff on this album has the same sort of awkward, um, you know, transfers. But in this album, and it might be because the distortion and the uh, chords sort of helps blend the stuff together, it doesn't seem as awkward. But again, yeah, right there in Speeding Back to My Baby, because it's using that sort of one four five chord progression and does that that chromatic lead up, it's it it almost feels like it's about to fall apart, but it, it never does. Hmm. Good point, John, because I think, too, if you like look at, you know, when uh, bands will use like the flat five chord, you know, that's a very dissonant sounding chord. So the transition from E to F is an odd one, too. But interesting, too, on the E to F transition, there's that pre-chorus in uh, Shock Me where he toggles you know back and forth from the full power chord to, you know, basically, you know, fret below. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the yeah, same yeah. sort of chord pattern, but, you know, this time it, it you know, it's, it's just in a different, I think in that case it was B to, to F sharp, whereas now we have E to F. Right. Um, and great, too, that you have what is essentially one of the key Ace Frehley um, guitar licks that starts off the track, and then he doubles that with an octave. It just sounds huge. It does. Yeah. I, 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 I like it. It's a catchy tune as well. I mean, I, it's one of my favorites on this record. Interesting production notes here, right? This is uh, first use of a backwards guitar solo. Yeah. Well, by, that's right. That's by Ace. Cool. Is that by Ace. the first use ever? No. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> no. sorry, yeah. sorry. Hendrix did it, and I think somebody yeah, Hendrix did it. Did it before. Are you experienced? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe Hendrix really did it. And right. <laughs> but interesting. On that, I'll, I'll close up the solo thing and you know, get rid of the, the guitar talk. Um, I did read that you know if you would, if you feel like a twenty-four track recording machine, right, and you have to flip over a tape in order to record something backwards, you've got to be careful with you know where you're going because what's on track twenty-one, what's on track one 
when you flip the tape over, he's on track 24. So right, yeah. you really got to keep things organized. And I think the the note from uh, the engineer in this one was that they basically recorded the, uh, just a solo to, uh, I think, just, you know, a four-track or, or you know, two-track machine and then dumped it into what became you know, the master uh, track. Yeah, exactly. That, that way you don't about, you know, losing anything there. But again, great to see Ace utilizing his influences, particularly in this case, uh, Jimi Hendrix. And one of these days, I was going to try to do it before today's uh, discussion, um, but I want, what I want to do is dump it to, like, you know, uh, a cassette recorder where you can, you know, where I can get it backwards. I'd love to hear the solo as it was originally played before they, you know, sort of reverse it. Wouldn't yeah. be funny if it was like a solo from, like, Parasite that we just don't recognize at this time, you know, and just... Okay, you know, well, it could be a funny thing. Right, yeah. It's funny you say that because Ace did, I mean, we can do that real easy in, in, in Pro Tools, but, Pro Tools. Um, yeah. you know, uh, Ace did say something about, it's really interesting how you take like a mediocre sounding solo and you reverse it and suddenly it sounds, you know, completely different and, and, and works for the song. So, you know, yeah. apparently it was something that Ace had tried playing the other way and wasn't happy with it. And they said, well, what if we reversed it? Yeah, yeah, but it comes across great. That first note is just screaming, you know. And it's funny because I've played this song live with bands, or at least in rehearsals with bands, and that's not, you know, trying to play a backwards guitar solo is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> I but, bet. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, couple other notes about this song. Um, great background vocals by the female uh, vocalist. I have to look up her name uh, to, to get her name, but um, just really, really bluesy, ballsy, perfect background vocals. Um, yeah, I think in this case, it's uh, David Lasley and Susan Collins. Who Susan I, Collins, I believe, yeah. Yeah, and I think Eddie Kramer had brought her into the uh, the mix because I think he'd worked with her before on either Joe uh, Cocker tracks or I think she had also uh, recorded some stuff with, with Hendrix. So I think that was a Eddie Kramer um, resource that he brought in. Okay. Yes. David Lasley, Susan Collins, yeah. Ferraris mixed into it, marking the second Kiss song to use car noises as kind of an effect. Uh, good point, yes. Um, even when I was a kid and I heard this song, it made me think of the song, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby, right? Do you know that song? So there's this novelty song like from 1925, uh, called Yes, Sir, That's My Baby, that's, you know, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby, No, Sir, I Don't Mean Maybe. And then the lyrics in this song are speeding back to my baby, and I don't mean maybe. And, you know, that this song has been was featured in the 1974 movie The Great Gatsby, 1975 movie Smile. It was a hit as recently as, like, 1966 by Sinatra. So it's not inconceivable that, you know, in the back of Ace's mind he would have been aware of it. I'm not sure how I was aware of it as a kid. I almost think it might have been featured in like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. It's, a, it's in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll look that up. I'm not familiar with that song. Yeah, unfortunately, I'll check that out. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Any other thoughts on Speeding Back before we move on? Uh, you know, just a well-written tune, and it's, it's, it's almost, you know, Ace just telling a story. It's believable. You know, I don't think he's saying anything in this that, you know, is made up, you know. I think that there's something. There's some. You know, there's obviously a situation where he needs to get back, and, and otherwise he's gonna be hell to pay. And you know, he's gonna get there no matter what. So, you know, but a great way to to, to sell a lyric. I think it, it comes across as a genuine song lyrically and obviously musically. Right. Well, I mean, the story itself is kind of funny if you think about it. Like he, 
has this fight with his girl because he sees his girl with another man and he wouldn't mind, but it kind of hurts his pride. So then he's decides to get in his car and race away from her. But at some point along the way, he has a change of heart and says, ah, you know, it's not that big a deal. I'm being kind of the asshole here. Maybe I'll just go back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So third song, a song that, probably never would have been on a Kiss album because it would have had to go through the censorship of Gene and Paul. This is really the first overt drug reference song that Kiss has ever done. Um, It's got a real cool descending chromatic riff to it that probably owes a little bit to Dazed and Confused. Um, So this is Snowblind. This is one of my favorite songs on it, even though it's all about cocaine. Um, although I'm well, you know, I don't. I'm just fascinated that this album has three overtly uh, drug-influenced songs. I tend to not like songs that are overtly about drugs. Um, you know, I mean, I, the song "I Can't Feel My Face When I'm With You" by The Weeknd that was a hit four or five years ago. Every middle school kid was singing that, and I wanted to be like, that's about doing cocaine. You can't sing that song. That's when you can't be in your face. It's when you're doing cocaine. So I tend to be immediately turned off by songs that are about uh, about drugs, but I really like the riff. I like um, how, you know, how he sings over it. I mean, it's it's a great song. I mean, it's, it's a really killer hard rock, and again, I think it's this beginning of sort of like this heavy metal sound that he's helping to invent. Well, you know, it's funny, though, the way that Ace talks about drugs, he rarely, as much as he has a reputation of being the party guy and and the drinker and the the drug addict, um, he rarely glamorizes that stuff in the context of the songs, even when that's what the song is about. You know, I mean, I think the lyrics that stick out the most on this album to me are looking out my window Sometimes I wonder if I'm ever going to get to where I'm going to go. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next summer. Girl, I just don't know because I'm snowblind. You know, I mean, his life, his life is directionless based on his addiction. And he's talking right. about that in a very frank and honest kind of way. And that's sort of the way that uh, Cold Gin is written from the point of view of, you know, the alcohol is the only thing that's going to keep us together. <laughs> He, I, I, I want to say I've read somewhere that he felt vaguely shitty about being, you know, using drugs. I mean, he used them all the time. There's some sort of story that he's on a camping trip and that's where he has his first beer at 11 or whatever and like throws up and gets a hangover and then wakes up and wants to do it all over, you know. And I think he's even stated that he feels guilty that that's sort of what, you know, um, works for it. You know what I mean? That, that, that he seems to have that addictive personality. But that seems to be in the song, what the message seems to be. At least in that, you know what I mean? In that, in that and Cold Gym. Yeah, and I think in his, I, I agree, I, I, I agree with John in terms of, you know, this uh, being sort of, you know, what we call it sort of like, a, you know, leaning towards, you know, metal you know, type songs. And, and also, too, Dave, to your point about it, you know, mimicking uh, Gage to Confuse because of that chromatic descending riff. Um, but, you know, it, again, it's, it's a heavy riff and it comes across great with, you know, the, the panning of the different rhythm guitars. Um, but on the subject of, you know, let's say whatever his point of view is of doing drugs, when he gets to that chorus, he's he's either frustrated or he's proud of it. You know, it's he's saying basically just, you know, screaming, I'm snowblind. <laughs> it's like, OK, yeah. you know, 
it's it's obviously there's some sort of you know sentiment behind that, whatever it may be. Right. Um, but also, and also too, I think one of the instruments that he used on this record, uh, this is one of the first uses of uh, guitar synthesizers, and there was a company called ARP, ARP, uh, that had a synthesizer um, that I later in the '80s had a chance to to, to see and try to use, and it, it was like this huge thing, like the size of like. I don't know, like a, a barbecue that you had all these levers and buttons on. I didn't know what to do with it, but uh, apparently he used it particularly in the uh, the climbing section of the guitar solo. There's a thing that sounds like a keyboard, yeah, um, and, and that's what he used there. And I remember I saw, saw an interview um, around this time after the album came out where Ace said that he mentioned he might be able, he might want to take you know the synthesizer on the next tour uh, for his solo in a live situation, but apparently that you know never happened. Uh, but then again, when you think about it, it's interesting too because. Um, he had other effects that he used on the Dynasty tour that would make his guitar sound, you know, really sort of spacey and that's either like a harmonizer or some sort of pitch transposer. So whether or not he used you know, the synth later on, he found some some other you know device that was able to, you know, come up with a, a sort of a similar sound in a live situation. That synthesizer cost like three thousand dollars back in the day in 1978 money, and it, it gave like when he uses it at least some of the time, it gives the guitars a really interesting, almost like flute-like sounding quality, like a woodwind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought, goes, that's funny, because I thought it was that harmonizer that you were playing last week, Mike, that I was hearing in there, but you're saying that it's actually the, the synthesizer. It's almost like doubled, right? Yeah, like, here's basically what he did later uh, for like the, um, the, the the Dynasty tour. He had this effect. So you got like... Now, obviously, you know, there would be an explosion that would, that would follow that, but, you know, that's a very synthy, you know, sound, and, you know, that is sort of jarring in a live situation, especially when it's, you know, at probably 130 dBs, you know? <laughs> Right. It's always better louder. That is, in my opinion. But uh, funny, too, I saw that Ace um, had done an interview in 1978 where uh, he said, well, this is basically a song about a snowstorm. Right. <laughs> Polar bear in a snowstorm. Right. right. Well, didn't Black Sabbath have a song called Snowblind that came out about the same time? I mean, isn't or am I thinking of two different things? I swear to God, there's like another yeah, they song did. called Snowblind, which is about cocaine. Like, everybody's doing songs about cocaine. Yeah, and Styx had one, too. And interesting, too, about Styx, I think, in their live sets, when they would play the song, they would basically say, listen, there's a lot of talk about this being, you know, a song that's you know, influenced by the devil and... They would say this. What we say is absolutely this song. You know, the devil had the devil had nothing to do with it. Okay, well that's fine, but it has to do with drugs. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's so, disclaimer. You know, not to get off on too much of a tangent here, but that's funny. That reminds me. You know, if if you look at the history of of rock music and its association with Satanism and the devil and stuff, right? The original rock musicians basically all come from. Uh, deeply religious backgrounds, singing in, in church choirs and, and being, you know, I mean, you have like the Southern blues guys that were all raised as, as Christians. And, and so like initially any song that you sung that wasn't overtly praising God uh, in a church was considered by default devil music. So, like, if you sang a song about, I miss my baby, you know, I can't wait to see her, I love her so much, that was the devil music, because you weren't talking directly about God. And then you can you can trace the way that that evolved to the point where you've got, like, 
you know, these Norwegian death metal bands that are singing about, oh, praise my Lord, sweet Satan. And they go, is that devil music? And they go, no, no, they don't really mean that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, subtle as a sledgehammer, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one more point about this song. Do you hear some electronic drums in there? I I do, yeah. I think there were some drums that were used on some bad company records. I think, um, oh, I forget the name of the song. Um, oh, Rock and Roll Fantasy. Yeah. Uh, because there was, there was a, a particular um, sort of the synth drum that was around at the time. And I, yeah, there's definitely something that doesn't sound like, a, let's say, a natural you know, wooden you know, drum with a, with a drum head on it. I'm not, I've, not, I've not ever seen anything that, that pointed to what that might have been, but I, I definitely hear something that could be, uh, you know, that type of sound. Yeah, I mean, it would have been out by then. The first electronic drums were early 70s. They weren't that common, but like, um, mm -hmm. yeah. So there's definitely something interesting going on there. So we go from one drug song to the next drug song. <laughs> but this one has a talk box in it, so it's cool. Yeah. Uh, ozone. Again, I love it. I mean, it's great. It's great riffage, great sort of that weird, as I'm saying, that heavy metal sound, that very guitar-centric, distorted, but almost cutting sound. Maybe it's, you know what, maybe it's the difference between, tell me if I'm wrong, if, it, if it's a difference between from going from a tube amp to solid state. You know what I mean? Like, it sounds, that's sort of how it sounds to me. But I could be wrong, but it, it sounds like more... Um, higher more trebler you know what i mean I don't, I don't know how to explain it like all of aces this whole album sort of sounds that way to me and i i sort of gave it the name more heavy metal you know what i mean not as mm -hmm. not as rock and roll but more heavy metal i don't know if i'm making much sense but it's, it's and so that just occurred to me it's like the difference between tube amp versus solid state what are they using at this point in the 70s even? is this like all electronics inside or is this they're not using tube amps anymore right tube amps are I think in this case, you know, for what I've read that, you know, in live situations, they were probably using Marshalls still. Uh, they didn't really in, endorse Marshall, but in the studio, I know Ace in several interviews has said he's used various uh, Fender combos, which, you know, at that time, they, there were solid state Fender combos available. I think he's always pointed to the fact that the Fender hardware amp, it's a tube amp that is one of his favorites. Mm. But, you know, I, I think in terms of sound overall in that point, this is when you listen to this record. You know, Kiss has always kind of you know sort of prided themselves and said, you know, all of you know, when we our records when you listen to them today compared to you know back then, they still sound fresh. Well, you know that might be a debatable point, but in the Ace record, this record really sounds fresh. It doesn't sound dated. I mean, there are songs on the other solo albums that sound of the period, whereas you know, I mean, other than maybe New York's Groove that might you know sound you know, disco-y, um, but in terms of the rest of the record, it still sounds fresh. It doesn't sound like it's you know. Written right, at the time. that's just it. So what? Why? What is this word? What is this adjective I'm looking for? Because I keep saying the only word I can come up with is heavy. You know, more heavy metal. More. You know, I don't know, man. All right, I'll let you. Know. I, 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 sorry. I think to that point, I'll say this. I think when you look at it this way, you're going from a situation where Ace was working with another guitar player to Ace basically just you know, doing overdubs, you know, on his own tracks. So maybe it's just right. a matter of focus, you know. But when you think about it, Ace has also been given a lot of credit. Uh, for being a great rhythm guitar player as well, you know, but maybe somewhat mm -hmm. different than, than Paul's rhythm playing. But I think it's just it's a it's a matter of focus, and you know, he I think he's even said that, you know, it, for this record I, I prefer to just track myself because I know what I've already done on the previous track rather than have to wonder, you know, what the other guy's going to do or how he's going to interpret it. 
Right. And also, I think, you know, the, I mean, I think definitely this album sounds better than Rock and Roll Over, better than Love Gun. Um, you know, part of it, I think, is they really took their time to get great sounds, um, mm -hmm. you know, versus whereas Ace would, you know, take a couple hours to do a guitar solo in the past. They talk about him taking all day just to work on one guitar solo. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they talk about their whole process was, you know, first we chose the amp and we played around with the sounds. And then when we got a sound we liked, we chose the guitar. And then when we got a guitar we liked, then we started worrying about what the part was going to be we were playing. Okay. So, you know, right. so they really, they paid a lot of attention to the way that the sounds. Okay. The other thing is they talk about how many guitar tracks are on here. Um, even just the rhythm guitar parts, they, 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 they say they filled up like 12 tracks worth of guitar parts. So there might frequently be two or three guitars that are blended together that sound like one guitar. And I think that makes the sound that much thicker and more, more present. You know, that's the okay. kind of thing that they probably didn't have the time to do when they were under the gun on tour making a Kiss album. Right, making an album every six months, right. And and obviously Ace has supported all of these songs, so he's already got, you know, stuff to work with. And in terms of sound, if you look at it this way, if it's more of like a, you know, I wouldn't say it's a studio product, but, you know, the last, you know, Kiss albums, they were essentially either trying to recreate, you know, a live uh, mm -hmm. sound, like Rock and Roll Over, we're going to record it in a theater. You know, Love Gun, obviously, was done, I think, Electric Lady, but, you know, they were probably still thinking, you know, you know, large venue sound but in this case you've got more of a, a clinical approach that it, it, that's why it comes across a little more uh focused and you know it's funny because you got the same you got the same guitar player working with the same engineer as a few other albums but somehow it's gone to a different level in terms of uh production quality um yeah. interesting point too musically the guitar solo ace does which is basically a descending pentatonic thing he does the same lick over three different chord changes. I think it's over D, B, and A, but it never changes until the very end. So what a clever way to make use of just you know a descending pentatonic lick. You know, it's, it's obviously descending and ascending, um, but you know, somehow that normally, John, you talked about sometimes what Ace does, you know, doesn't necessarily make sense from a musical point of view. That, that to me, if somebody said, just play the same lick over three different chord changes, I would say, what are you talking about? But it works. Right. Yeah. It, yeah, in fact, it actually sounds it sounds progressive. I'm very impressed by this album more than I thought it would be because of that kind of stuff that's going on in it. Yeah, uh, this song too. Really, I mean, we'll get to Fractured Mirror, but this has like a really almost cinematic quality to it. If you just l listen to the music, which you know you go through the whole uh, verse chorus before you get into the vocals. It, it it it's almost reminiscent of like a James Bond like spy movie kind of thing. Like there's mm -hmm. you know there's really interesting musical changes and accents and uh, yeah, I mean it's just and then lyrically obviously mm. this guy making doing drugs a precondition to having a relationship with him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. there's probably a kernel of truth to that based on what we know about Ace at this point. Um, yeah. it, it's funny that, that if you've read some of the books that have been written about him by some other people, um, you know, Ace was into all kinds of weird drugs that I have never even heard of. And <laughs> so he whether- He used to huff. He used to huff like paint thinner. I mean, 
just weird stuff. Weird, like, you know, chemically concocted designer drug stuff that, like, you know, mixed with, yeah, cough syrup and just, like... Mm -hmm. So you wonder, was ozone actually a real drug, or was that just the name he came up with, you know, as a generic term for whatever? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say I don't know what, what type of drug, you know, would, would put one in an ozone situation. But, you know, again, he's, you know, if, if that's your choice, then he, he's selling the concept here, you know. And, and he's doing it in three-part harmony, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, on, you know, it makes me want to do drugs. Okay, right? just kidding. But, <laughs> but in terms of three-part harmony, think about this. I think he's only, he's listed as the only vocalist on this track. And he's got that, oh, yeah. So, you know, and there's like that, you know, the, the fifth, whatever it is. You know, way to go, Ace. You know, for you know, triple tracking different harmony vocals. I mean, but, but that's, isn't he, that's he's also the, using he's using that talk box, that Peter Frampton talk box thing. Is he in those? Well, no, I think that's that's in New York Groove, John. Yeah, oh, I mean, if, if okay, it, all right. I don't know. I mean, there could be something in the chorus, you know, that that I'm not hearing or I, I've not read about, but uh, it definitely, okay. yeah, it sounds fuller, and they're just definitely in the chorus. Yeah, okay. something that might not be a vocal. Uh, without, unless it's maybe the guitar synthesizer again, I don't know. From a, a songwriting sound, uh, point of view, it's interesting because I think there are only two verses in this song, but there, I think there's about maybe 25 seconds from the beginning of the song to when he finally gets to the to the verse. It's almost like there's a lot of wasted space at the beginning of the song. Like maybe should have come in straight away to the verse with that. You know, what would you what would you think of that song that if there was basically you know a, a, another verse that came in a lot earlier in the song? Or was it necessary to establish that riff being what it is and then bring the vocal in later? You know, I don't mind it. I, I think uh, it is unusual for a Kiss song to make you wait that long before the vocal comes in. But I think those individual parts instrumentally are so instru interesting in and of themselves that mm -hmm. I don't mind the fact that he showcases it like that. I don't get bored. I'm not saying when is the vocal going to come in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Okay, I just wanted to bring it up to the, to the group because it's interesting that, you know, there is quite a bit of space there, but those, in, those riffs are interesting enough that it, that it carries through. Yeah. Moving on to another slightly unconventional song in terms of the arrangement, What's On Your Mind, power pop tune, um, sort of the sensitive side of Ace, um, and also a song that features kind of two choruses, one chorus of which only happens once in the entire song when he does the refrain you know what's on your mind uh, that thing happens once once in the song which is really yeah. unusual for for a kiss song hmm good point yeah i, I didn't think of it that way but you're, you're absolutely right because it really sets up the, the guitar solo but it's a way to use the solo section as a vocal section as well yeah wow i never never noticed that thank you yeah i never even noticed that either good point I'm not, this is not one of the songs that really stays with me from the album. So, now, oh man, see, now we should, we should listen to the album, then do the podcast, then re-listen to the album, and then do another podcast. Right. So you should have noticed, yeah. No, okay, I didn't notice that at all. No, that's funny, because I, I've been listening to it like crazy, and I, I still, I, that, that escaped me, I missed that completely, so. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Sure, man. Um, you know, also interesting, he has the acoustic guitar blended in there. Yeah, works mm -hmm. works very tastefully in this song. Um, very very relatively short solo for this album in there, right? Yeah, and another example too of Ace, you know, not only just doing you know um, you know a just a you know a lead guitar track, 
Um, he's doing a lot of guitar harmonies uh, rhythmically and also in some of the solos, where in this case, I think this is uh, doubled like as, as an octave type thing, mm -hmm. which you know takes on a whole different level. I mean, the, the orchestration of the guitars in this is, you know, the fact that you know, learning that stuff, you know, as a kid, you know, trying to figure out what's going on here is, you know, really a, a great way to learn how to write songs and approach, you know, original material uh, when it comes to, you know, the song structure and, and guitar solos. But yeah, short solo, but effective. Um, and again, I think it's more used to that sort of semi-fuzzy uh, guitar sound because I think it kicks in halfway through the course that you mentioned, Dave, where he's like, what's in your mind? There's like a, this other third guitar that comes in right before the guitar solo comes in, just takes it and, you know, lifts it up a bit. So, mm. you know, well, well thought out, well thought out. Um, you know, and, and good song. I think this is, again, uh, with some background vocals from Susan Collins. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and not again, not the easiest song to present live. No wonder I think Ace has only done it when he played the entire album um you know a few years back live yeah uh, but i i've tried it and it's you know you, you could play it and you know a couple people in the audience would say okay I, I, great song i'm glad you played it but the rest of the audience is looking at you like you know is this a kiss song <laughs> yeah well that's that's kind of how i took it i mean i still liked it but it definitely like i said it's, it's something i would probably skip over uh in the future Right. And I like, too, how at the end, um, he adds, not only is the, the acoustic guitar happening, there's like a sort of a, uh, a double stop he does, but he also does his classic uh, toggle switch. Uh, oh, yes. At the very end. Right, yes. yeah. Which is, to me, all ace. I mean, I know Jimmy Page you know, did it in 73 or whatever, but, you know, to me, it, I don't know. I, ace, I think, is, it, it was less of a gimmick to him. I think it was a signature part of the sound, and he, he, I think he deserves to get credit for that. For sure. Which brings us to the big hit of all four solo albums, Cover Song by Russ Ballard. Uh, had previously been done by the band Hello, was a minor hit in England, New York Groove. And what's interesting to me about this song, there's a few different interesting things about it. Um, one of the interesting things about it is they recorded it three times. Uh, in two different places before they were satisfied with the version and the cut that they that they got. So they tried recording it in the mansion where they would have had the drums set up uh, on the staircase on a landing. Um, then they didn't they didn't like that. There were subtle uh, changes in tempo that were on the original demo they felt they hadn't got. So they tried to record it again at the studio in New York. They still weren't happy with it. And they recorded it a third time. So obviously, you know, they, they had very high hopes for this song. They were really, really taking their time and just getting it exactly where they wanted it to be. And it paid off. I mean, this, this song, yeah. you, you still hear this song, you know, on TV commercials, on television, it, 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 you know. And it's, it's become one of those quintessential new york songs that 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 um i've heard it on the simpsons i think you know um yeah it and it's really um it's it all comes down to ace i think out of any artist i can think of there is no other artist that makes cover songs his own and puts his own personal stamp on a cover song quite like ace does i like the uh 
well the the stamp the the stomping on the box at the beginning you know they're all stomping to get that you know instead of a clapping sound they get that and the um you know the the almost you know the soul or Motowny guitar which i guess is now officially being called disco guitar right um at the beginning there that it, this is this is the song that is the top of my long distance drive playlist that as soon as I got an iPod and, you know, could create playlists, I, this was the first song on the first, you know, uh, playlist that I ever made was this one. Um, because it's got that, you know, the move, it, it moves really well. It's, um, but it's also, again, it's, it's heavier than you, you know, than the original. And it's, it's, uh, it still falls into what I call that sort of like heavy metal sound that they're slowly going for, even though it's got influences of like, pop it's it's a it's a very pop song it's a very disco-y song you know what i mean but it really um i'm interested as to like why they chose to do it i had heard that ace didn't necessarily want to do it um mm -hmm. and then why does it have such a different sound as everything else on the album at least in terms of that opening guitar riff you know that you know that sort of um motown sound or you know what i mean like that that rhythm and blues guitar sound rather than sort of his riff-heavy stuff. So, what I mean, I, I read that he didn't want to do it, but you guys probably know better than me. Uh, and I, had, I believe I have read something where Ace was reluctant to do it. Uh, but I've also read, too, that, you know, when they were tracking it, that they were really listening to, you know, the version that was recorded by Hello uh, as a point of reference to make sure they got it, you know, the way they wanted it. But in that case, you know, first of all, the version that was recorded by Hello, I believe it's written by Russ Ballard, and I've read that he basically wrote that song with the band in the studio. So it was sort of a quick thing they put together. Yeah. Um, but then when you listen to the Hello version, which, again, is about impossible to find. I mean, these days you can find it online, but, like, finding it on record was really tough to do for a number of years. Their version sounds a little more glam rock in a way. Yeah. You know, whereas the vocal's not as uh, confident or as relaxed in a way. You know, the it's sort of, you know... Uh, you know, contradiction there, but nonetheless, you see what I mean? Like Ace is being confident about the vocal, but he's, he's very comfortable with delivering that, that lyric, whereas, you know, the Hello version sounds a little timid and maybe not as genuine, you know, no discredit to you know, what, what those guys are in terms of players and as a band. Um, but interesting, too, that, you know, here's a song that was released and was a hit, you know, in 1975, and here it is, you know, two and a half years later, Ace is going to record this song. I mean, whoever brought it to him and how it got into, you know, the mix you know, good for them because it became a major hit. And it was really one of the only songs that they did on later tours, particularly um, Dynasty Unmasked, whereas, you know, they attempted other songs from solo albums from other members, but, you know, those, those sort of fell by the wayside, but Newark Group, you know, stayed there. And interesting point, too, the uh, Ace's version and Hello, uh, they were both hits, but they also reached number 13. So okay. that was their chart position. Um, well, that see, that smells to me like someone saying we need a hit off this album, and this is how we're going to do it. If you're going to track it three times plus, you know what I mean, and it's a cover song, and someone's got to bring it to it. This smells like someone almost saying like this is going to be your hit. We got to make. I this think work. they were self-consciously going for you know if they needed a hit song from this record, you know this was going to be the one. Um, yeah. And because I, I think, you know, it's got that great dramatic point where the E uh, comes in on the chorus, you know, mm -hmm. and it gives it that balls, that heaviness. And, you know, obviously Ace lends it a certain authentic New York vibe. It's almost a proto rap kind of, you know, singing, <laughs> talking vocal. But he's, you know, he's, he's 
he's shout, belting out those words at the same time. Um, the song never crosses that line. It never becomes a full-on hard rock song, you know, and I think that's by design, right? As soon as you get that right. E, it pulls back and it becomes, you know, they kind of take it down a notch with the funk thing. And, and to me, if there's one flaw in the song, I think there's a different place they could have gone after that E comes in, in the chorus, to take it up a notch to a different level that the song just doesn't go to. It, it, to me, when I hear it, I feel like it's begging to go somewhere else, and it, it doesn't. Yeah, okay. And you're talking about the part where it goes back into the back. Yeah, New I'm York back. Groove. Back yeah. in the New York groove. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I think that goes to the whole, like, this is going to be the hit. We need to keep this mid-tempo. I mean, I can't tell you the number of, um, like they did with uh, God of Thunder. And, I mean, there's, there, uh, you guys, there was a band called the Gin Blossoms. Um, and I remember I got a demo tape from them before they were hits. Somebody somehow I found somebody sent it to somebody who had it and blah blah blah. And every single song was at double time of what the actual. And then a year later, suddenly there's this band that everybody loves, and it's the Gin Blossoms, and it's all of the songs that I had heard on that demo tape now cut in half speed. Wow, you know I didn't know that. And that's and that's it, that's all of those bands from the '90s, the Goo Goo Dolls, all of those bands had all of their songs, they were signed, and then the label said, we're going to cut your time, you know what I mean? The speed at which you're playing in half. You're no longer punk rockers. You, hmm. listen, to you listen to the replacements, Don't Tell a Soul. As soon as they get hmm. their major label debut, cut your tempos. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I think there is some sort of weird rule that there's like, this is how many beats per minute you can have before this isn't going to grab... Um, Susie Shoemaker, soccer mom, you know what I mean? Or something like that. I don't know. I, I've never understood it, but it seems like I've seen all of these bands, their hits, you know, Delamitri. I mean, this is all stuff from the 90s. This has nothing to do with Kiss, but all of these bands, you know what I mean, that I, that I heard as punk bands in the 90s, 80s and 90s, suddenly their hits were like, your tempo's cut in half. So I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it. I mean, is there some sort of weird rule like that i don't know but uh, you know i don't know i'm just bringing that to the table as an idea as to why because i agree it could be a lot heavier but it's not and it still works you know i mean i it's still one of my favorite songs ever it but does because i think you know because ace identifies with being from new york and identifies as being a new yorker you know bronx boy mm -hmm. that he is um mm -hmm. interesting musical notes um the, the song goes up a half step Mm -hmm. uh midway right on the second verse which yeah uh, yeah yeah i love that that's my favorite because yes sorry i don't mean to oh that's okay. but the, is the whole thing modulated a half step or whatever yeah yeah, yeah that's that's one of the, the coolest parts of that whole song is the way that it's sort of it almost feels like you're stepping out of a car at that point you know what i mean and now you're on the street that's uh. one of my favorite things about that song I'm going to say that's the only Kiss song to ever do that, although Russ Ballard talked in the, in the interview, said that he used to put that in his songs as a, a key change regularly. Hmm. Yeah, definitely a lot of you know, hits from the, the, you know, the 60s. You know, it was used quite a bit, and then obviously you know, maybe that tapered off in, in the 70s, but it was definitely a thing arrangement-wise. Um, but more like you know, pop music you know, or you know, uh, you know, soft pop compared to you know, hard rock. Pop what, were, what were some of the other songs that did that? Um, I'm trying to, th I know there were like, there were like a lot of songs that the, the Carpenters did, 
Okay. Um, where they they were changed. I think um, if you just like pull out the Carpenter's greatest hits, there must be like five or six songs where they they modulate up a half step. Interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. As there soon was... as we're done with all of the Kiss albums, we start on the Carpenters. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Karen had a hell of a voice, and you know, yeah, Richard no, was the Ranger was. Yeah. Yeah. But then, yeah, complete you know opposite in terms of approach. Uh, what was I going to say about the song? Um, okay, interesting too because it was written by basically um, by people that weren't from New York. Right. But, you know, it's just professing a love for New York, which I guess if you visit New York, especially in that era, it would have been a thing to, to write about. Um, but interesting point, too, is Russ had later, uh, well, he didn't later write the song, but he uh, had written and uh, recorded uh, God Gave Rock and Roll to You with Argent, which you know, Kiss later covered, um, as well as he was the no writer way. of, right? Am I, I'm right on that, right? Yes. And also In yes. the Night, which Ace plays, uh, uh, did a cover of on a later solo album. Yes. Uh, what else am I going to say? Let me just get some noise here because we're talking about different uh, sounds, right? Yeah. So you hear, you hear like the funk thing. Okay, so you got the, the main riff, um, which by the way, let me get this going. Here you can hear it. Whether or not you can hear that, that that's where the talk box is used on this record. Okay. And as a kid reading the back of the record, I think there was a guy named Bobby McAdams that you know played something called Power Mouth, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that's there is. What's a Power Mouth? Well, research, in which I just found this out, you know, two months ago, there were various versions of talk boxes that were made, custom made. Some, you know, you named the company, but there was a, a, an actual uh, talk box that was labeled as the Power Mouth. So, hence, you know, the term where that came from. But then also too, you had you know the the funkiness of the, the talk box happening. But I'm also hearing a lot of Fender guitars, which I'm not playing right now. I'm playing a Les Paul, but you have those um, accents, um, those yeah. little two-note, you know, accents, which are very, you know, funk, soul, you know, type chords to play. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but it all works. I mean, it, it also, it's sure it sounds slightly disco, but it, you know, it became a huge hit. And I, on the, the point too, John, about uh, whether or not this was uh, a focused effort to, to have a hit. I, I don't, I've not read anything about how involved Bill Coin was with these records because how are you going to manage four different artists at the same time and try to guide that and you know achieve some sort of chart success and who's going to get who's going to get you know the, the winning number in that case? I mean, is it, you know, in this case it was Ace, but was that by design or was it something that was focused on in house with Ace and Eddie Kramer without mm, yeah. management involvement? I don't know. I've not seen anything about that. Dave, John, have you seen anything? No, that's that's a good point. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the song is there are like some subtle but kind of important lyric changes between the original uh, hello version and the, the way that Ace sings it. Um, the, the line, buildings tower into the sky, it's out of sight, you know, that's uh, slightly different. Um, the most interesting lyric change to me, though, is in the back of my Cadillac, a wicked lady sitting by my side saying, where are we? Right. So in. In the original version, that's in the back of a, a Cadillac, not his. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lady sitting by my side saying, where are we? Um, I mean, just interesting that Ace was using that slang term, wicked, uh, back in 1978, because as we know, <laughs> knowing some people from Boston, that is very much a Boston slang term to mean, you know, cool or badass or whatever. And apparently it was in the 70s as well. Well, yeah. good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good point, because there are definitely uh, subtle lyric changes, you know, and obviously, I think Ace has done that too on other cover songs as well. I think he changed the line or two in Do Ya and other, you know, covers as well. So, 
you know, again, he makes the song his own. And in a way, you know, in some cases, and in this case, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, the, the song is executed in a better way and it's a better presentation. For sure. All right, m moving on. I'm in need of love. Uh, judicious use of delays. Um, maybe the first psychedelic sounding Kiss song uh, to come along. Uh, Mike, you want to talk about that? Yeah, it's. I, I love. I love this song, um, and I love the fact that too. You mentioned echo. Um, I, as a kid, I always wondered what the heck is that weird noise at the beginning of the song. And you know, later on, learned how to play guitar, and, and I read, you know, in Guitar Player magazine in 1979, that Ace essentially used two effects live. One, which was you know the Mutron Optus Divider that we mentioned uh, previously, but he also used a thing called an Echoplex, which is essentially just a big tape recorder that records your guitar and plays it back and will repeat it back as many times in whatever tempo you want it to be. It's also an effect that he used in the live shows where the, the guitar would smoke and you hear all this crazy noise going on. Um, but what, what this is, is basically it, Ace would be hitting like a, an E note and then you, you fade in uh, all this echo that's going on with an echoplex. And I could do it for you now, but you know, the record obviously does that way better than I could. But that's what that sound is. It's basically mm. just a repeating E note that is sort of swelled in you know, volume-wise. Okay. Um, but, you know, again, the use of the echo, from a technical standpoint, you know, when he hits some of those notes, those descending uh, E notes and the ascending A notes in the verse on the guitar, those pan left and right. And at the time, there wasn't a stereo echoplex. I mean, maybe there were stereo delays. This gets a little technical for, you know, this kind of thing. But if that was just a manual thing they were doing, you know, with panning, that's a lot of work, mix-wise. Yeah, well, talking about how they mixed this album... Um, they didn't, there was some rudimentary autom automation in consoles at the time, but not on the console mm -hmm. that they mixed the album on. So, um, what okay. they would do is they would slave the, you know, whatever they were mixing to, um, half inch or quarter inch tape. Um, mm -hmm. and they would, they would tack, tackle these songs in sections, you know, so they would work on, yeah. okay, let's get the best verse. Let's get the best chorus. And then, you know, at a certain point, they might even, you know, ra be razor blade cutting uh, together, like different choruses and different verses together to see how it all gelled together. But uh, they even talk about, you know, it was primarily Eddie and his assistant engineer, but occasionally they would actually have Ace turn some knobs in real time, too, because, mm. you know, mixing all those guitars and all those tracks, it was there was a lot of manual stuff that they had to do and had to get right. Um, even just doing it section by section. And to that point, too, with the echo, uh, I was going to mention, too, on uh, uh, Snowblind, where he says, I'm lost in space, ace, space, ace. Well, that, all those echoes apparently were, you know, them cutting tape because, you know, he would say the word space and it would echo back, but they would cut out the SP and you would just get the ace. Yes. You know, I mean, that, the amount of, you know, it's like the difference between CGI and, you know, and, and film. I mean, it, it, this is an art, you know, when it comes to recording albums right, at that yeah. time. Yeah, it's a it's a subtle thing, but you yeah, I mean now it's the, the kind of thing you could do that very easily in Pro Tools, no problem. But back then, yeah. it was a it was a lot of work to to get that effect for sure. And it, we mentioned you know in several cases on this record, but there's a bit of a, a funk feel, and I think part of that with this song is I think we had Will Lee playing bass, and he's doing this sort of you know third intervals you know over the the major chords, which you know is you know. A, a funk approach, you know, in terms of bass lines, and it, it comes across that way. Um, but in terms of the vocal delivery, it's interesting because I want to ask you guys about this. It's funny because Ace, you know, there's a 
like the A line and the B line, and the A line he's basically so give, and then the B line is so give me some. It's a real subtle. It's, it goes from like aggressive to to subtle. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah almost like a, a call and response kind of thing. The first line's belted out, then the second is this quiet answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, or like a split personality or whatever you want to call it. There's something there where he said, I'm going to put this song this way because it's pretty much consistent throughout. Yeah. You know, listening to that today, the thing that struck me about it is there's kind of a subtle nod in, in one of the lines to both The Who and Jimi Hendrix, right? When he does the whole... C -c curl it's not yeah. my fault you know that very much like uh the who's my generation the the stuttering speed freak uh thing and then <laughs> yeah. you know and then and then on the on the return of that one he says you move me which is total yeah. Jimi hendrix reference well, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. wild thing yeah oh, yeah well yeah but also yeah. jimmy right Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, both, yeah. Both of those. Yeah. And that's a, that's a key line in, in both versions of that, of that song. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I, from a music standpoint, you know, the solo is great, but it's, there's a, that point at the end where I think he does like eight bars of just bending the same note over and over again. It's, it's, a, it's sort of maddening in a way when you listen to that. You know, but the whole time behind that, You've got this, uh, you know, ascending chord structure, which again I think is guitar synthesizer. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it, it's just a well constructed song. You know, I, I really don't think there's you know a second of, of dead air in this record. Um, you know, that's that says a lot because I mean, a lot of records from this era, from other artists, where you can kind of say, okay, you know, this is B track music and it's just it's filler. Whereas I don't think there's any filler in this record. And, you know, this is a great example of you know how if he had ideas and he put those across in an organized way. Also, the solo, worthy to note, goes into double time, which is yeah. a, a different thing. I think he does that twice on this album. There, there are two solos that are essentially double the tempo of the normal part of the song. And I think this song really needs that as a relief because it, you know, it, it has the potential to be have almost like a dirge-like quality to it. And the solo mm -hmm. offers that release, you know, yeah. and gives you the break from that. Definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And again, this is, this is a fairly uh, you know solo, right? There's nobody else that, that wrote any of the, the, the material in the song, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. except for Russ. Bow I mean, isn't this the infamous? Didn't Gene and Paul say to him like, "If you need any help with this album, feel free to give us a call or something"? And that was just like, got you know that that was the gauntlet thrown down. You know what I mean? So I think you're. I think right. you are correct about that. Now that you mention it, that does sound familiar. That's funny. Yeah, and wow. Ace said, "When hell freezes over." <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this would have been a hell of a kiss album, though. I mean, you would have had to take the three drug songs out, but still, I mean, it would have been perfect. Or rewrite, yeah, these are... rewrite the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Good tune. You know. You know. Yeah, it... I like it a lot too. I like it's almost yeah, it's power poppy, but at the same time, it's it's it harkens back to sort of the sixties, sixty eight psychedelia type of song. That's yeah. So speaking of of, of songs from the sixties that Ace references. Um, right. Wiped out, which, you know, the, the whole intro and 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 him saying wiped out is very clearly a reference to the surf tune Wipeout, which right. he actually covered in some of his previous bands. This is a really interesting song musically. I mean, the, the interplay between the guitars and and the way that the drums work on, on this song. I don't. I can't think of another song in 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 which uh, Ace and Anton work together so well to create something that really 
almost transcends genre. I mean, like mm-hmm. in, in some ways, and and because Anton was able to come up with such interesting drum parts to this song, supposedly the story is Ace said, "Well, hey, you you contributed so much to the song with your drum parts. Why don't you go and write the lyrics?" Which is mm-hmm. really interesting because the lyrics seem to capture Ace Frehley's personality and attitude right. to yeah. a T. And if you think about yeah. an a- Anton Fig does not have a reputation as being a hard partier or drinker or you know anything like that. The fact that he was able to tap into his friend's attitude and disposition so perfectly is kind of amazing. It's totally interesting because the lyrical delivery is something that you don't really hear from Ace a lot. You know what I mean? Ace tends to draw out what he's saying or, you know what I mean? And this one sort of has, as you were saying, almost a proto-rap sort of, you know, way of telling a story. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily always have the same uh, way that is, um, you know, and all the other stuff that he does. You know what I mean? So that's, that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those, the way that the lyrics are delivered is definitely sort of a, you know, it's like a sort of a rock and roll cliche, that sort of fast delivery of like a story. But by the same token, it's definitely different than anything else on this album. Or even in some of the earlier previous Kiss albums. Yeah, I mean, it almost has kind of a novelty song kind of quality to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the verses especially like kind of remind me of something from the 50s, like the coasters, you know, like yakety yak or something. I mean, uh, but then once you get to the to the chorus, it's so heavy, down, you know. Down, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's um, cool. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a perfect piece of rock candy, the way it goes back and forth between those parts. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take that. That's great. Yeah, it's one of my yeah. favorite songs in the album. So, yeah. And from you know, a musical standpoint, um, I think I'm hearing a lot of Fender guitar in this as well, because there's also wah-wah happening um, in the verses, which again is probably you know tip of the hat to Hendrix. Um, but this is one of the songs too I've always thought, you know, from a guitar standpoint, is he playing this in open G? Some of these chords sound, the voicing sound a little bigger than just you know uh, a standard tune guitar. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of you know mixtures. Ace is known for you know mixing guitars uh, made by you know Gibson and Fender. Which I think Dave, you and I did on the Dame Fortune track Lush. I think you were playing Les Paul and I was playing the Telly. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to that song, you get that heavy guitar, you know, full sound from Gibson. You get sort of the thinner, um, you know, maybe more pronounced sound from the Fender Telly. And I'm hearing a lot of that on, on this track. But also too, it's funny because from this, a storytelling standpoint, it tells such a great story that you're waiting for it to fall apart at any time. Yeah. You know, he's basically he's just going right. from one note to the next, from one verse to the other, and then when he gets to the chorus, he's like. I was wiped out, and he's proud of it. He's like, I was wiped <laughs> <my lights> out. <laughs> well, it, it, it encapsulates. Out. Yeah, it encapsulates a night of him, you know, carousing. You know what I mean? Like he's just it's so many, so many things going on, and eventually, boom, it just hits you, and you're down. And it's not uncommon for you know, people to get in that sort of you know state of mind, if you will, and not remember what happened. But here, he's. It sounds like this is you know. Take a, a page out of his calendar, and you know, this is what happened that night, and this is where it was going, and you know I survived, and I'm patting myself on the back. I mean, I don't you know encourage anybody to live that way, but here's a guy who, you know, if he's making this up, you know, so be it. But I I think there's a bit of truth to to some of the lyrics that are in this song. And, and on the musical point too, Dave, it's interesting because I think Anton was credited. I'm, I'm not a drummer, and I've only read this, but apparently, uh, rhythm wise, it goes from six four to four four in that. The chorus, and I think after hearing that, Ace was quoted as saying, "Well, you you brought such a, a change, and you know, let's say I'll say in a positive way 
uh, to the to that part of the song. That's you know he wanted to bring him in and, and say write some lyrics and we'll give you a co-write on this, Anton. So, but it's amazing. I mean that, you know, I mean I wouldn't say it's it's frog rock, but you know th- th- those sort of shifting time signatures are really not something that you see in a lot of rock bands. Um, and the fact that Anton brought that to the mix, you know, shows that he's got you know chops you know beyond you know um, what might have been you know what people would ex- would expect from the, from this record but it, it it's just it's an amazing thing that really goes you know overlooked by someone who doesn't have sort of a, a musical background and wouldn't notice that but the reason for, the, for those changes in that, in that chorus is because of anton's playing it's amazing yeah mm-hmm. and i'm not sure that it actually it's funny because i i read that same thing analyzing the the the, the uh time signature change but then mm-hmm. there, there's also a point where anton says it actually doesn't change the time signature it just changes the emphasis so whether or not that's just the way he's thinking of it i mean it's definitely an odd accent either way you either way you cut it you know but 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 yeah he there's definitely a turnaround happening there in the way he's emphasizing the beats that that would throw a normal drummer for a loop yeah yeah so all right moving on to the closing number uh of the album which ironically is the song that ace uses uh you know to play through the pa as kind of the opening uh song that plays as the band is coming out on stage and that is a song called fractured mirror which is an art rock instrumental song that um builds from a very very simple guitar figure to being this monstrous, like amazing uh, guitar piece by the end with all kinds of stuff going on. Um, I'm not surprised. They said that they mixed most of the songs on this record in a day. Uh, It took them two days to mix Fractured Mirror. And I think part of it is because, you know, unlike having clearly defined verses and choruses, uh, this is a song that simply builds upon itself and changes and evolves in a really interesting, organic, natural kind of way as it progresses, it would be hard to mix this song section by section because it doesn't really have sections. No, it's just one long building uh, movement or several movements coming together, it seems like. I mean, and it's definitely Ace Fraley's this is what I can do, please pay attention type of song. You know what I mean? It's sort of, um, he's definitely chilling off here or whatever. I mean, not in a bad way, but he's, you know, this is, this is definitely, again, he, from the rhythm and blues funk almost of New York group to this art rock or whatever you want to call it, um, classically influenced um, piece at the end, you know, and he was trying to show his chops, like all the different, his full range of how he can play. Certainly a, a song that allows him to be taken more seriously as a musician, um, than than maybe other songs did and mike i see you have a double neck guitar there i think i know where you're going with this yeah you 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 see right through me brother and i appreciate that it's amazing because even as early as 1979 in guitar player he revealed what he uh used as an approach to that uh intro uh, which really when you think about it you know there'd be nothing more uninteresting or boring than just to go back and forth from b to a and and call that you know a song part but what he does with it is is Impressive enough to me where I finally learned how to do it, and um, I used it recently on a recording. Let me see if I can get this sound happening for it. But what he did was basically, he has a huge collection of guitars, and he had an old Gibson uh, double neck that he used on, on this record. And the deal was, um, 
There's my sound. So we basically tuned one of the necks on the guitar to an open E drone. Right. And then he played on the opposite neck, a, a, a chord passage, but all, the pickups on that neck weren't used. They weren't turned on. He just had the lower neck turned on. So you get this sort of, let me get my sound here. Um, it's this sort of, it's, it's really, you can't really hear me. from a neck that's not even turned on you know in terms of the double neck approach it's I mean, just it, resonating it's just being picked yeah. up by the bottom pickups okay I yeah that. and uh, what oh, i that's pretty cool it, you know after all these years of reading the article i thought oh that's what it does you know, that's how it's done and i once i got that i was like oh my god i gotta use that somewhere you know i found a song to do that on but it's you know again just, you know thinking outside of the box and making a simple uh, chord structure uh come across it in a in an organized way and in a thoughtful way i mean what what a technique! I mean, I I don't think of any other. I can't think of any other record where that's been used. Yeah. Um, you know, where's your top like you know? Let me try this idea. I mean, it could have just yeah. been a mistake. He might have just had the wrong. You know, the top was switching in the wrong position. I thought that's a neat sound. The probably said, "Oh, somebody said, hey, let's use that. Let's try that." I don't know. But Wasn't one of the great. one of the uh, guitars uh, uh, next a uh, twelve string too? Yeah, yeah. I think I have a picture over here. He had. I think what it was is the bottom neck had. A six string, but the top neck on his was a mandolin neck. Yeah. Okay. So, so he might have tuned the mandolin to open E and just play the six string. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, he probably had you know various sorts of double necks. But yeah, the reason I'm going to bring that guitar about is because that sound is you know really just you know the the basis for this song. It just goes uh, you know in so many other diff different directions and levels. But to, it's just an amazing piece because it's almost like um, you know. Um, uh, like a film score type, you know, soundtrack type. Very cinematic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. beautiful though too. Inspiring. I mean, it's such yeah. a, you know, it's hard not to. By the time you get to the end of that song, like it's hard not to have a smile on your face because it's such a, a positive sounding, uh, like it song that that just inspires you. And um, you know, from the from the very subtle things like the bell and the sound of birds at the beginning. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Only song on this album to feature a different drummer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is all bell player and a bell player. Yes. Yep. Uh, you know, but the funny about the atmosphere about this song, we probably all you know got this record around the same time. You know, when it, sometime around the time it came out, nineteen seventy-eight. But we all grew up in neighborhoods that, you know, not to bring religion into the thing. There were tons of churches in our neighborhoods, and I remember there were three churches in, in my neighborhood. Yes. Where every Sunday morning I would hear these bells, uh -huh. and every time I hear this song, I, it takes me back to being a kid and, and just hearing you know birds and you know good times as a kid and hearing these bells, thinking why do I have to ring those things so loud? But it's it's a real graceful you know interesting sort of a call to say you know to draw people into mm. um, you know to church in a way. But so you know point being, it's great to have you know something that starts out that way. You have like going from like outside nature into you know a recording studio, and it it, it starts that way. And it, the song builds, and it, it takes you out that way because you get the same sort of effects at the end with you know the, um, you know the, the sort of you know harpsichord guitar and, and you know, the double neck sounding thing. It's 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 a great piece. I love this song. I yeah. really love this song. And I think it's a, a piece that Ace has been chasing through multiple instrumental sense that he's never quite been able to top. Um, it's an interesting point you make about the the church calling you to to worship because uh, that that kind of puts a whole new spin on the idea that he plays it as his band is coming on to stage, right? I mean, the, you know, the, good the point. idea of the rock yeah. and roll church. Yeah. 
Yeah. Does anybody know why it's called Fractured Mirror? That's a good question. I okay. It's, I read an interview. I think it was with Anton. Yeah, it was with Anton. And you know whether or not he, he was a partier or not. I guess you know there was a lot of fun that was you know had when they were making this record. And I, the story he tells is you know we were doing some stuff and using some powders that you know you probably shouldn't use, and there were a few mirrors uh, that got broken as a result. Hence the title. I don't know how true that is. If he was just joking around, but you know that's something that I've read. And I'm sure you can find it online if you want to try to verify it. Yeah. Well, fractured. I'll be perfectly honest. The phrase "fractured mirror" is a very cliched, cliched, almost pretentious title. You know what I mean? Like that's the only thing that turns me off about the song itself is that title. Like, kind of because of the bells and things like that. I expected, more, you know, a better, at least a better title. It doesn't. It's almost like they were just floating around for a name. And then apparently, does he? He's made this. He's been sequels to this song on solo albums. Yeah. Yeah, that are good, but never as good as this. You know what I mean? I mean, I've, I've liked them, but never as much as I've liked this. So I don't know. I'll just say, interesting too about the title. You know, here it is. You know, when you know the band finally got back together. You know, Gene, Paulie, and Peter, and they recorded Dynasty and they toured. You know, and Paul comes out with a fractured mirror guitar, essentially. I was just going to mention that that the, the title itself evokes Paul's guitar to me, and I want you That's wonder true. if there's some uh, kind of connection uh, there. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's, uh, in terms of just, you know, technique, there's this weird, like, percussion sound at the end of the song. And I think, well, this is, I don't know, I think Ace might have even said that he used this sound as well. But if you pick the guitar be string behind the bridge, uh, you get this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. sort of, you know, which is really just almost like, you know, a throwaway sound. But, you know, done at, at the right tempo, it adds something. There's sort of an eeriness. Like, what is that thing? What is that sound? That's, yeah. Yeah, I that's know exactly what, standard, what you're you, talking about. That's a pretty standard. I mean, if you guys are familiar with Fugazi, that's a pretty standard, like, phrase that they use a lot of times. I mean, and they've even admitted uh, that they're influenced by kids. But they use, they use that a lot as sort of a way to create a... Um, sound like glass breaking or, you know, something to add a little bit more tension to what they're doing. And other, other, I mean, I think used to do is use that same technique. I mean, it's okay. definitely a very cool sound. I've always loved it. But. See, I heard that and I wondered if it wasn't the guitar synthesizer that he was somehow using that to make it sound percussive. Uh, could be. Yeah. Or it could be a combination of the both or, you know. Yeah. Now, okay, so this song, the drummer in this was Carl uh, Tallarico. Um, but I read too that this was done before the mansion sessions yes uh, around the time that they did a demo of i'm in need of love so interesting you have such a you know this sort of huge production song that you know was recorded early on in the process you would think it'd be something where they would you know maybe save that to the end as in terms of you know focus and energy but you know if it wasn't recorded at the mansion or uh, at plaza sound then some extra studios must have been a fantastic facility as well right but they did mix it Oh, that's true. They did mix it at, at, uh, at Plaza Sound. Good point. Okay. Um, okay. And that brings us to the end of the album. There is one other song we can talk about. Um, there's a song that Ace demoed called All for Nothing uh, that was going to be on this album. And apparently there's a version of it that has lyrics, um, not great audio quality. I haven't been able to find it, but I did. We did. Mike and I were going back and forth talking <laughs> about the instrumental version that's available online on YouTube. And it's a really cool, really interesting song. Um, the, the version that's online, there's like an extended ending to it where Ace and Anton 
kind of go back and forth playing the same the same riff the same part but they they do it like through several different feels and changes which is really kind of an education for like well if this is the part of the song how are the different ways we could approach it you know and like here's three or four uh, different ways we could do this um but mm -hmm. really i think that song i'm surprised ace has never gone back to and done anything with because i think it has the potential to be as good as anything on this album yeah, it's interesting riffs too because you know they're 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 you know the, the, if you want to call it you, know, you can't really call it a verse or a chorus until you really hear the the vocals or the lyrics. But um, you know they're two different feels. Um, and in, in the case of what I call the the verse, uh, it's if you've heard the uh, the Hollywood Stars version of King of the Nighttime World, the the verse part of this song uh, has a very similar feel uh, to their approach to King of the Nighttime World, which is slightly different from the way Kiss approached for Destroyer. Sure. Um, but I, you know, I, have to, I have to check. I just haven't had a chance to do it. I've got you know milk crates of, of cassettes, you know, of demos that I've you know received from you know friends and purchased at, at record shows. There, I might have something in the closet. I got to dig it out. I don't know. There might be a version that has uh, lyrics because I seem to recall hearing or reading about a version that has lyrics. It exists. But, uh, yeah, I just haven't okay. been able to find it. And despite what Eddie Kramer says, because in the interview I read with him, he recalls cutting the song as an instrumental and that it wasn't finished, and he doesn't recall there being. Uh, a lyric, you know, or a vocal on it, but you know, I mean, you know, we could all be wrong, or we could all be right. It's a matter of just tracking it down. Yeah, absolutely. So, any final thoughts about Ace Frehley's solo album? No, good. A welcome surprise. I mean, I haven't, I really haven't listened to this album again, and since I probably got a cassette copy of it in the early '80s or late '70s, you know what I mean? Um, I forgot how good it was. Um, I feel guilty for not listening to it more. Probably <laughs> selling my cassette tape to like Jerry's Records or something. <laughs> uh, in terms of final thoughts for me, I, I was very excited to hear this record, and I believe I got a I wanted a record player of my own as a kid. Uh, so I, I assume this is December nineteen seventy eight. I got one of those like little kid record players, you know, similar to the Kiss record player that came out. Um, and so I got the record player in this record and I wanted to play it. So I opened the box right there in the living room and put the record on. Well, I don't know if the, the record player didn't have a needle in it or if the needle was defective, but I put the needle on the first groove of this record and it just went right across the end of the first side. So I thought, oh, okay, no. this, isn't a, this isn't a good sign. So you know, I later played on, on a real stereo and I was able to appreciate it. Um, but to, to me, you know, not even to get into the, the packaging of this thing, but you know, there were order forms for a lot of killer merchandise for each individual member. Right. It came with the interlocking poster, which I think was done by an artist that had po painted uh, posters for the Fillmore East from like 68 to 73. Yeah. Um, you have the, the classic uh, paintings by Rado uh, Karagai, I think his name is, which are mm -hmm. amazing. You know, the, the art, you know, and those, you know, the, the awesome posters you could buy as part of this. Um, and interesting too, that, you know, later they issued things like, you know, known as you know, the best of the solo albums and also some promo albums as well. Um, but to me, it's just an, it's a really inspirational record. And it was such an influence on me, um, you know, just as a kid learning how to play guitar. But also when I was in uh, Kiss Tree bands, there were times where we had as many as Ace, uh, as many as eight uh, Ace songs in, in, in the two sets that we would play, which, you know, I don't know of any other Kiss Tree bands that were doing that at the time or are doing that now. But, you know, it shows how much of a fan I was of Ace and his playing and how... Um, Willing and open, you know, uh, the Kiss Tree band that I was in, Mr. Speed, was, you know, it was okay to, you know, to try, you know, a lot of these tracks, you know, whereas a lot of other bands might not do that, you know. And it's just, to me, that, you know, I would say that probably, you know, 
we've, we, we tried probably half of the songs in this record in a lot of those, you know, stayed in some of our early sets. And it's, it's just an amazing record. And I admire Ace for uh, really shining through because, again, I think the record sounds timeless. It's well recorded. And it's, it goes to show how, you know, when you have a great artist and, and a great engineer producer and great players, and, you know, not that many. There's only a handful of people on this record. But, you know, it's, it's focused. And, and Bravo Ace, great record. Yeah, I mean, if, if I had one final thought, um, I, I, I think that this album, the process of making this album uh, turned Ace into a viable solo artist, you know, because he literally went from singing on his back on the floor in the dark, uh, holding the microphone because he had no confidence, uh, you know, to recording a couple songs like that with Eddie Kramer to the point where he was standing up and singing it and belting it out. And, you know, th this whole idea in rock and roll that, you know, it's it's about how technically good you are as a, as a guitar player, as a singer or whatever. I mean, I, I always think of Paul Stanley's quote when he says, look, if you want a virtuoso, why don't you listen to Andre Segovia or, or Luciano Pavarotti? You know, Ace's mm -hmm. voice, what he does with it on this album is exactly what the songs call for. There's nothing that he does that is beyond him and there's nothing that he does that sounds less than appropriate for the songs so you know what more do you want than all of the songs to be dripping with that new york bronx boy attitude and that's this album from top to bottom you know it just it rings true musically lyrically and i think that's why it's the best of the solo albums yeah mm -hmm. yeah he's very yeah. driven by this that this is one of his like he, he was out to prove something when he made it and absolutely he, he proved it but it really i get that vibe from beginning to end that he's like i'm gonna do songs about drugs i'm gonna do songs about breaking up with women where i'm not as you know full of bravado as the rest of the guys you know what i mean like this is i'm, I'm gonna do it my way and it's gonna work so yeah absolutely he had something to prove and he did it and that you yeah. know that yeah. shines through on this record um well, I guess next week we will take a look at the Paul Stanley solo album, and then we'll just go downhill from there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have fun doing it. Yes, we will. <laughs>